Chapter Twelve of the Conquest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Conquest by Oscar Michaud. The Homesteaders. Of neighbors I had many. There was Miss Carter from old Missouri, whose claim joined mine on the west, and another Missourian to the north of her, a loud-talking German north of him, and an English preacher to the east of the German. A traveling man's family lived north of me, and a big, fat, lazy barber who seemed to be taking the rest-cure joined me on the east. His name was Starks, and he had drawn number 252. He had a nice level claim with only a few buffalo wallows to detract from its value, and he held the distinction of being the most uncompromisingly lazy man on the little crow. This, coupled with the unpardonable fault of complaining about everything, made him nigh unbearable, and he was known as the Beefer. He came from a small town, usually the home of his ilk in Iowa, where he had a small shop and owned three and a half acres of garden and orchard ground on the outskirts of the town. He would take a fiendish delight in relating and re-relating how the folks in his house back in Iowa were having strawberries, new peas, green beans, spring onions, and enjoying all the fruits of a tropical climate, while he was holding down an infernal no-account claim on the little crow and eating out of a can. A merchant was holding down a claim south of him, and a banker lived south of the merchant. Thus it was a varied class of homesteaders around Callias and Megary, the first summer on the Little Crow. Only about one in every eight or ten was a farmer. They were of all vocations in life and all nationalities, excepting Negroes, and I controlled the colored vote. This was one place where being a colored man was an honorary distinction. I remember how I once requested the stage-driver to bring me some meat from Megary, there being no meat-shop in Callias, and it was to be left at the post-office. Apparently I had failed to give the stage-driver my name, for when I called for it, it was handed out to me, done up in a neat package, and addressed, Colored Man, Callias. My neighbors soon learned, however, that my given name was Oscar, but it was some time before they could all spell or pronounce the odd surname. During the month of June it rained twenty-three days, but I was so determined to break out one hundred and twenty acres that after a few days of the rainy weather I went out and worked in the rain. Starks used to go up to town about four o'clock for the mail, wearing a long yellow slicker, and when he saw me going around the half-mile land he remarked to the bystanders, "'Just look at that fool nigger uh, working in the rain.' Being the first year of settlement in a new country, there naturally was no hay to buy, so the settlers turned their stock out to graze, and many valuable horses strayed away and were lost. When it rained so much, and the weather turned so warm, the mosquitoes filled the air and covered the earth, and attacked everything in their path. When I turned my horses out after the day's work was done, they soon found their way to town where they stood in the shelter of some buildings and fought mosquitoes. Their favorite place for this pastime was the post office, where Billinger had a shed awning over the boardwalk, 
the framework consisting of two-by-fours joined together and nailed lightly to the building, and on top of this he had laid a few rough boards. Under this crude shelter the homesteaders found relief from the broiling afternoon sun, and swapped news concerning the latest offer for their claims. The mosquitoes did not bother so much in even so slight an enclosure as this, as every night Jenny Mule would walk on to the boardwalk, prick up her ears, and look in at the window. About this time the big horse would come along and begin to scratch his neck on one of the two-by-fours, and suddenly down would go Billinger's portable awning with a loud crash, which was augmented by Jenny Mule getting out from under the falling boards. As the sound echoed through the slumbering village, the big horse would rush away to the middle of the street, with a prolonged snort, and wonder what it was all about. This was the story Billinger told when I came around the next morning to drive them home from the storekeeper's oat-bin, where they had indulged in a midnight lunch. The performance was repeated nightly, and got Brother Billinger out of bed at all hours. He swore by all the gods of Buddha and the people of South Dakota that he would put the beasts up and charge me a dollar to get them. Early one morning I came over, and found that Billinger had remained true to his oath, and the horse and mule were tied to a wagon belonging to the storekeeper. Nearby on a pile of rock sat Billinger, nodding away, sound asleep. I quietly untied the rope from the wagon and peaceably led them home. Then Billinger was in a rage. He had a small, screechy, tremulous voice, and it fairly sputtered as he tirated. "'If it don't beat all, I never saw the like. I was up all last night chasing those darned horses, caught them and tied them up, and along comes Deverall while I'm asleep and takes horses, rope, and all.' The crowd roared, and Billinger decided the joke was on him. Miss Carter, my neighbor on the west, had her trouble, too. One day she came by, distressed and almost on the verge of tears, and burst out, "'Oh, oh, oh! I hardly know what to do!' I could never bear seeing anyone in such distress, and I became touched by her grief. Upon becoming more calm, she told me, "'The banker says that the man who is breaking prairie on my claim is ruining the ground.' She was simply heartbroken about it, and off she went into another spasm of distress. I saw the fellow wasn't laying the sod over smoothly because he had a sixteen-inch plough, and had it set to cut only about eight inches, which caused the sod to push away and pile up on the edges, instead of turning and dropping into the furrow. I went with her, and explained to the fellow where the fault lay. The next day he was doing a much better job. Those who have always lived in the older settled parts of the country sometimes have exaggerated ideas of life on the homestead, and the following incident offers a partial explanation. Maggery and Callias each had a newspaper, and when they weren't roasting each other and claiming their paper to be the only live and progressive organ in the country, they were building railroads or printing romantic tales about the brave homesteader girls. A little red-headed girl nicknamed Jack owned a claim near Callias. One day it was reported that she killed a rattlesnake in her house. The report of the great encounter reached Eastern dailies and was published as a Sunday feature story in one of the leading Omaha papers. 
It was accompanied by gorgeous pictures of the girl in a leather skirt, riding boots, and cowboy hat, entering a sod house, and before her, coiled and poised to strike, lay a monster rattlesnake. Turning on her heel, and jerking the bridle from her horse's head, she made a terrific swing at Mr. Rattlesnake, and he, of course, met his Waterloo. This, so the story read, was the eightieth rattlesnake she had killed. She was described as Rattlesnake Jack, and thereafter went by that name. She was also credited with having spent the previous winter alone on her claim, and rather enjoyed the wintry nights and snow blockade. Now, as a matter of fact, she had spent most of the previous winter enjoying the comforts of a front room at the Hotel Callias, going to the claim occasionally, on nice days. She had no horse, and as to the eighty rattlesnakes, seventy-nine were myths, existing only in the mind of a prolific feature story writer for the Sunday edition of the Great Dailies. In fact, she had killed one small young rattler with a button. End of chapter 12